Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by U.S. Public Health Service veteran, Dr. Heather Silvio. Heather, thank you for sharing your time with me today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So we met about five years ago in Las Vegas when you attended my solo show, and we bonded afterwards in the lobby over our love of theater. But I just now learned something new, as you're the first veteran I've met who served in the public health service branch of the military. Yes. So there's seven uniformed services. The public health service is uniformed, but not armed. It's just it falls under public health instead of defense. I thought you were in the Navy. We use the ranking system the same as the Navy. Um, And then a couple of our uniforms are basically the same as the Navy, even though we actually use them first. And so people, people get very confused by that. And I was stationed with the Air Force, so for even more confusion. So I was with the Public Health Service stationed on an Air Force base, Um, as part of a DOD PHS um, mental health initiative where they were putting mental health providers across across the country on various bases and stuff. And I was, you know, in and out, in and out, working there. And then one day, the young man who was working security forces, he was like, ma'am, and you could tell he was nervous because I'm an officer, you know, and he's like, ma'am, can I ask you a question? Of course. What country are you from? I point to the American flag on my shoulder and I'm like, this one? Oh. <laughs> uh, if he could have crawled under a rock, I'm sure he would have. I didn't care, but he was horrified by that. He's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's really not a big deal. Um, but that's how confusing it was um, for people because it's a smaller service. It's an all officer corps and their mission is the public health. It's not defense. So there's not a ton of overlap with the traditional armed forces. Um, most PHS officers historically, and probably still today, are with the Indian Health Service and the Bureau of Prisons. So outside of that, a lot of folks haven't heard heard of us. That is so interesting. I shouldn't have made the assumption that you were in the Navy, so thank you for teaching me something new. And in addition to being a doctor of clinical psychology, you're also a published author a very published author, as well as a singer and an actor. So we have a lot to discuss. So share with us your origin story and what led you to joining the military. I will try to do the uh, Notes version of it. Um, I've actually come a little bit full circle because I was born and raised in Miami. And then in high school, we moved to suburban Houston. And then from there, once I turned 17, all bets were off. I have since lived in... Austin, Maine, New York City twice, Connecticut, Athens, Georgia, Las Vegas, um, and then now I live here in, in Tampa. I think that covered everywhere. If I left something out, I would not be surprised. <laughs> did you come from a military family? Yes and no. So I did. Um, both my grandparents were in the service. Um, and then my father and one of my uncles were as well, but they all did one, one tour. So I didn't really move all that much 
But I, I had that bug. And so once I turned, I graduated high school at 17 and moved to Austin to start college. And then that just started it. I was like, I like going new places. This is really fun. Um, I wanted to serve my country. That was something I was always interested in doing. It was just going to be a bonus that I would be able to move all over the country and the world. Um, that didn't work out quite the way I planned, but, um, but that was part of the reason I became an officer. So did you go through an OTS? I did. Although, again, funny story, I was actually on my base for almost six months before I then went to our basic, our officer training. And it was like two weeks in a hotel. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny because people would ask me questions in those first few months on the base. And I'd say, I've gotten some reading material, but I'm not hundred percent sure because I haven't been to training yet. That is so fascinating. How did this come about? You went to college first. I actually uh, received three degrees before I commissioned as an officer. I got my bachelor's degree and then for fun, I got a master's in artificial intelligence. And then I went back to my love, which was psychology and I got my doctorate in psychology. And by then I had gotten licensed in New York. I was living in New York City. I was doing acting, also working as a forensic psychologist. Um, And then realized I wanted something a little more meaningful. And so I was flipping through, and I wasn't sure what that was going to be, but I was flipping through a journal, a psychology journal, and I saw this like two-page spread. I think it was two pages, but for the U.S. Public Health Service, announcing this big drive for new officers specifically for this initiative. And I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. And I, like I said, wanted to serve my country. That was something that was important to me. And I thought, this seems like a really good fit for what I want to do. And so, yeah, so I, you know, applied and, and commissioned as an officer. But yeah, by then I already had three degrees and was already into a career, just wanted something a little bit different. And what year was this? So that would have been December of 2008. And was the push coming from a place of the military um, wanting to recruit psychologists for mental health for the military? Yes. And and not just psychologists, but also social workers and and just really anybody who could do therapy, essentially, Um, because the DOD was having a hard time holding on to people. They would train them pay for their school, they do whatever their commitment was, and then they would get out where presumably they had more control, could make more money, whatever their reasons were. And so their thinking was, since PHS had people and could get more people, and then we deploy, but we don't deploy the way the armed forces deploy. And so it allowed a certain level of stability on the base because if I deployed, our deployments were only two weeks long. Instead of, say, six months. (laughs) Where did you deploy to? I deployed twice to Native American reservations, but but I was actually stationed on on Shepherd the entire time. Again, you surprise me. I have never heard of anybody being deployed to a Native American reservation. What was that like? So it was really interesting. I mean... It was interesting. They obviously were going through troubles or we wouldn't have been there. Um, We were deployed in response to suicide clusters in their youth. And so it was, we were part of a month long effort where um, we have a number of mental health teams that would go into week um, rotations. So, you know, 
folks would go in and like the first groups would establish stuff. So it kind of worked like that. So it was, it was very interesting. I had done a little bit of work, you know, with native American populations before, but not, not very much. And certainly not on reservations. Um, after getting out of the service, I continued to do some consulting and, and training actually with native American law enforcement, which was really cool. Um, but it's, it's interesting because there's so there's no easy answer with any of it. It's, it's, it's just a very, very complex situation. And so, you know, going in and talking with youth who are suicidal and talking with their parents who don't know what to do when they don't necessarily feel like there's a lot of opportunity for them on their particular reservation. And, and, and yet at the same time, what I was told by a lot of them was that if they left, they wouldn't be welcomed back. Um, even if not officially, unofficially, um, like I talked to one woman who um, did come back and she was working to change that perception. But when she left to get and get her degree to go to college, she said that, you know, a number of people told her, well, once you leave, you know, you, you won't be you won't be Indian anymore. And so don't come back. Um, she did anyway, because she was like, it's my home and I want to make it a better place. And so she totally did and made a lot of really good progress for that. But there's a, there's a lot of pieces to it that are cultural. There's a lot of systemic issues, of course, and the relationship between the United States government and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, along with tribal government. I mean, there's just, there's so many moving parts to that. Um, but I loved being there. I really enjoyed working with the folks that I did um, because people were trying to make a difference. And, and I, I respond to that. I, I love when people don't just throw up their hands and say, well, there's nothing that can be done. When they're actively trying to improve something, I want to try to support that as much as possible in whatever little way I can. So I was just a little cog in those machines, but it was nice to be there to help out, you know, in whatever way I could. Absolutely. And it must have really been dire straits for them to reach out of their reservation network to bring somebody in or bring a group in. That just really speaks volumes about the severity of that situation. So to go into that for even two weeks, you as a therapist, how do you self-care for yourself? It's, you know, you, you always have to remember that. I mean, burnout is high in my profession for a reason. Part of it is, is taking care of yourself physically. Um, And back then I wasn't having the physical issues that I have now. So that piece was a little bit easier. Um, But a lot of it is remembering that you can't, you can't do it all and you can't take on other people's issues. You can be there to help in whatever way they say they need. Cause that was always, that's always been my approach as a therapist is I'm never going to tell somebody, this is what you have to do. It's tell me where you are, tell me what you need. And I will see if I can help you find a way to get to that. Cause sometimes they just can't see the way to it. And I can sometimes illuminate that. And so remembering though, that ultimately I don't have responsibility for that person. There's, they're, still going to make the choices they're going to make. Um, and I, and I can't control that. And, I, and it's not my responsibility, you know, either. And so, and that's hard. That's very hard, especially when you work with somebody, you know, when I, when I was working at the VA, you know, working with the men and women who in the PTSD treatment program, you know, if they did our full program, it was like a two-year program between all the different groups that they could take and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I would have, you know, the same people who would do all of my groups and, and I would see some of them for individual therapy. And so I would see these, these, these folks on a very regular basis 
And you do start to become attached. I mean, there's, there's no way not to. And we, you know, hear about their spouses and their kids if they had them and they were having work issues. And, you know, you would talk about other stuff as well. Um, and it was, and it's, it becomes harder. And I remember one of the gentlemen that I worked with, um, he passed away, not, it was medical issues. Um, and I went to the funeral, you know, and I was like, I really, uh, like he had been a big part of a lot of the groups that I was running at that time. And his, his death was a big loss for a lot of the men and women that I was working with at that time. And, um, and so, yeah, I went, I actually went to the funeral and, and talked to, you know, the folks there. And, and, and I remember his, his wife coming up to me. She's like, oh my gosh, you're Dr. Silvio. And gave me a big hug and was like, you have made such a world of difference. And I mean, I cried. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, cause that's, at least for me, that's why I became a psychologist because I truly believe that people can be their best. They just sometimes need a little guidance to be able to do that. Right. I recently spoke with a vet friend about the shift in mental health in the military, especially since I got out in 03, about how many more resources are available to service members and their families now. And it seems, it seems to me, as an outsider now, that the military has embraced utilizing mental health services and that it won't, or presumably won't, affect your promotion or duty assignments or hold you back in some way. I was stationed at Ramstein from 01 to 03, and when people were being deployed, there were a few mental health services available, but I felt like there was a stigma attached to mental health at that time. But my friend I spoke with, who is still overseas, told me that now they have mental health counselors who go to the deployment area and speak with service members and their families, and that they don't necessarily document or take names if they're not comfortable with that. And now also that the deployment area has a DJ and pizza and bouncy castles for the kids and they make it something positive. And that was news to me. I mean, that is such a change in the past 17 years that people have been deploying to this current war. So when you saw that magazine article in 08 uh, for an outreach for public health and mental health services, I mean, it took that long for the military to recognize the need for that. When I was in, they weren't to the point of what your friend now is describing because I had some bad things happen when I was in the service and I went to my primary care doctor and, and being a psychologist, I recognized that I was experiencing anxiety and I was talking with her about it. And her response to me was, well, are you sure that staying in the service is the right choice for you? Like that was her response. And then when I reported what was happening to me, up my chain, I was, I was told to suck it up and, and just wait until either I PCS or the person involved PCS. And, and I was like, well, that's not acceptable to me. And so I instituted an IG complaint, like it went and it was completely vindicated, but it still soured me on it. And I, that is actually why I walked away from that career because I decided it wasn't worth it. So they had made strides in recognizing, and you could come see folks in mental health, um, but still, the first question I would get asked from people was, you know, is this going to ruin my career? And generally speaking, it didn't. And that's where I think we were starting to see that shift. Because what the way I always conceptualized it for them is if you come in while it's still manageable, you absolutely don't have to give up your career. If you wait and deny you have symptoms and get to the point then 
where it, it's, it is too late. Cause there is a certain point at which, at least with the air force, you know, eventually they're going to be like, we, we can't deploy you. You aren't getting any better. You know, at this point, we are going to probably med board you or otherwise encourage you to leave. Right. Um, so it was a mix. They weren't, I don't think they had quite, they were starting to turn that corner to make it more acceptable. Um, I'm glad to hear that it's, it's even better now. Um, but it, they weren't quite there yet when I was in. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear you had an experience that soured you. What were your next steps after? After I resigned my commission um, and when I got out, I actually, the VA, uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, was doing a big push for the first new medical center being built in the country uh, in Las Vegas. And I thought, oh, well, I have all this experience and I'm a veteran. I think that would be pretty cool to at least, because I still felt like I wanted to give back. And so even though I wasn't going to be doing it in uniform anymore, I thought this might be a way to do that. And so I applied and I uh, became part of the combat-related PTSD treatment program at the Southern Nevada Medical Medical Center. I probably didn't say that right, but but in Las Vegas for the VA. And, and so I was a staff psychologist for a little while. I was the um, interim team chief for a little while. I, did a, I wore a couple of different hats while I was there, started some new programs, some new groups, was able to really, I think, really make a difference. Um, I, loved, I loved my patients. I really, really liked what I did. Unfortunately, my own medical stuff got a lot worse. I have severe asthma. So being in a small room with people with their, you know, scented lotions and perfumes and smokers and just all of that kind of, even the cleaning products that they were using to clean my office and outside, I started having asthma attacks. Um, And so eventually decided that working in an office wasn't going to work for me anymore. So I left that job, decided to use my GI Bill and went back to school for another degree. So I know you pursued an MFA in creative writing, and I want to talk about the 12 plus books you've written soon, but uh, can you speak about your work as a clinical psychologist with the Council for a Strong America and the Police Training Institute? Sure. So a lot of people have heard of Council for a Strong America, but they aren't aware of sort of their structure and what they really do. So Council for a Strong America has five siblings, essentially. Um, And one of them is Fight Crime Investing Kids, which some people are familiar with. Um, That group, their sort of role uh, or their idea is that if we can reach kids younger, they don't become customers of the police later in life. And the idea is just helping them make healthy choices, really. And so... All of Council for a Strong America has historically been advocacy-based. But back in like 2015, 2016, the Fight Crime Investing Kids members who were all like sheriffs, chiefs, you know, sort of your upper echelon of law enforcement all around the country. And I I believe at last count, it was over 5,500. So they started sort of clamoring for something that was more of a direct service. And so... Fight Crime Investing Kids did a poll, basically, of their members and said, what do you guys want? What are you looking for? And they said they want something that can strengthen ties with the community. And they specifically wanted something that would have a youth focus. So um, they brought in someone who is my current boss, uh, John Shanks, brought him in as the national director. And he basically put 
together, the initial team uh, worked with another company to hire consultants. I w- this is actually when I came on board, even though I didn't know it. I was hired as the subject matter expert to write the section of the curriculum related to trauma. So what we do is work to bridge the gap between law enforcement and community, specifically community youth and particularly of color. And so it is a multi-pronged training program. We actually work with both law enforcement and the youth. We we do listening sessions with the youth. We do a town hall with the actual community members. We do ride-alongs with the police department. We meet with their command staff. We meet with their their trainers to see what they're already doing. And we do all of that before we even step foot into the classroom. And then we take the information that we've gathered specific to that community and we incorporate that into our standard curriculum. And then we do um, two days of training with the officers and then a day of training with the youth. Although we don't call it training with the youth, we call it an engagement. Um, But what makes our program unique, at least among a lot of the programs that I'm aware of out there, is that we don't just bring the youth in for like a photo op and say, hey, thanks for being part of this. We do an entire morning of engagement with them where they learn a lot of the same topics that the the officers are learning about de-escalation and um, listening skills and implicit bias and adolescent brain development and a lot of those kinds of things. And then we bring them together at lunch on that second day and have them sit with each other and start to talk to each other. We do icebreakers. Uh, there's one called Two Truths and a Lie where you have to guess which one is the lie, you know, and, and do all of that kind of stuff to break that ice. And then we spend the afternoon doing role plays. And we do role play scenarios that draw on what they have learned in the classroom. But what, again, what kind of makes it unique is we start off with the youth playing the youth and the officers playing the officers, but over the course of the scenarios, we start swapping it. So then the cops play the kids and the kids play the cops. And it's really interesting because then they get to see how they are perceived by the other side. And so the goal is empathy. We're really trying, I mean, obviously education, but also really a big part of it is empathy. Too much in today's society is us versus them. And not only is it not not helpful, but it's also not true. Um, We have a lot more in common with each other than we do differences. And so we really try to highlight that and help them to see each other like that. And then we tell them, you know, this is just the start of it. We've helped you start this conversation you know, go forth and continue it. And then we're there if needed for consulting, you know, that kind of stuff. And then we're grant funded, so we don't cost them anything. Wow. And you've been doing this for almost a year that you've been in Tampa? I've been, I've been there over a year. What is the full circle moment that you've seen, if you have seen a full circle moment, just with the police department in 2020, the police, the, the overall viewing of police, what's happening in this country, as you're doing this program, have there been any surprises or have you been able, like the de-escalation that you talked about, have you seen any of these uh, examples of role-playing being implemented outside the classroom setting, if you will? We have. Now, unfortunately, obviously with, with COVID and that coinciding very shortly thereafter with a lot of the protests and a lot of the calls for change within law enforcement, we haven't been able to do very much because we can't travel anywhere. We can't do any of that. Um, We've tried to do some stuff virtually. 
Um, and, and I still, we talk to community groups, we talk to, you know, law enforcement agencies, but we've been, we haven't been able to do as much lately, but I will say from previous, um, we do get emails and phone calls from officers and from youth thanking us for it and giving us examples of this is what happened. Um, I'll, I'll share two with you that actually happened before I came on board, but they're just so incredible. Uh, so one was a young man happened out in California um, after a shooting uh, of a young man. And it turned out that this, the young man who took our class was friends with this other young man. And so he came in and he was angry, very, very angry and had some really pointed questions, you know, for the officers and really, but very well-spoken, able to articulate, you know, his concerns and able to ask. He didn't let the anger consume him. He was able to ask and say, you know, can you help me with this? And the officers listened to him, to his concerns, to his frustrations, to his fears, and talked with him about it. And from what I understand, again, because I wasn't there, it did, it did predate me, but by the end of the training, uh, the, this, this young man actually was so taken in by um, the, the sheriff's department that he decided to apply to become a deputy. Um, and then the last we heard, he was actually through that process and was in training. And so it's like, and, and our stuff is not intended for recruitment. That's not a goal at all. But it just speaks to the power of the program that he realized he could be angry or he could be part of the pro- part of the solution, right? And so he decided that for him, being part of the solution meant becoming an officer and actually being on, on that on the law and order side of things to show that the groups can get along. So that was one that was really cool. And then on, the, on an officer side, did one in Texas and the officer came in and was like, yeah, I'm here because I was told to be here. You know, if parents would parent and teachers would teach, we wouldn't have the problems that we have, you know, just really not owning anything, right? But then participated in the program, did a really good job with it, you know, by the end of it said, you know, this was actually a really, really good program. I'm glad that I came. It was really very helpful. And then sometime later emailed to say, you know, he had gotten called to a home for um, a young lady who was not obeying her parents, wasn't going to school. And so he said, you know, previously I just would have gone in there and been like, you know, obey your parents. They're telling you to do stuff. Just, just do it. And he said, I didn't. I sat down and I really listened to her and it turned out she was being victimized. And that's why she was acting out. And so by actually listening and hearing her, he was able to take steps to help her be safe. Um, and so, you know, so yeah, so we, we see these changes that can take place. Um, one of the departments that I've been very active with since I came on board is Albuquerque. They did not have the best history they were under what was called a consent decree, which is when the federal government steps in and says, you are completely mismanaging yourselves and you're gonna have to do things differently. And they've been under it for a number of years and they've been making some incredible strides. And so they brought us in, Um, they went through our program, they went through our train the trainer. We actually went back to consult with them as they started to roll it out. They have a whole plan in place well before COVID. Actually, I should probably check in with them now to see what's going on, but where they were going to be, you know, rolling out the program throughout all of their high schools to make sure that they hit 
all of the teenagers in Albuquerque. Like that was their plan. Like they had this. And so then we had expanded. We had been in talks with the New Mexico State Police to start to bring it to them so that we could cover the whole state, basically. Um, Obviously, like I said, COVID screwed all that up. but, But a lot of people are really taking to the program and they're taking it and they're running with it. And that's, that's what we want is because it doesn't really do a lot of good. And so if you just go in, you do the class, you check boxes and nothing really changes. And that's been a legit criticism of a number of these kinds of programs is it's, it's like a drive-by training. You know, there's, there's no follow-up, follow-through. It doesn't really go anywhere. And so how do you track any of those changes? But we actually have done that. We've had a process evaluation. We've had an outcome evaluation. We've checked in with people six months later, a year later, you know, and we're always available for anybody that we've trained if they want to reach out. Um, and so, you know, we feel like it's, it's, it's very successful um, in that, you know, in that regard. Oh, for sure. And thank you for explaining and giving examples of what one area of the Council for a Strong America offers. And it sounds like it's a really needed program. And I agree with your earlier comment about empathy. We can all take a moment to work on understanding one another. Just really, I think that's what 2020 has helped a lot of people with, just taking a break as we're all working through this COVID quarantine world and finding understanding with each other. So shifting gears, and I know I've bounced around in terms of your timeline, you're so accomplished and educated as a doctor in clinical psychology and creating therapy programs for combat veterans and working as a consultant and having private clients. But you're also an author of a number of books and not just clinically with your book, like the special snowflake syndrome, but also in the nonfiction space, because you have six volumes of a series called the paranormal talent agency. So share a little bit with us what that is and where you found the time to do all this. Yes. So, so I, I published my first book when I was getting my doctorate back in 2002. Um, and then as I was pushing that and writing some more, uh, my mother passed away. And that sort of took everything out of me at that point. And so I didn't really do a whole lot of writing for a little while. Um, and then when I was um, back in New York in 2008... I started, I don't know, I think, I think things really started turning around for me more emotionally at that point um, in terms of the writing. And so to date, I have 14 books. Um, two of them are um, three book collections of the Paranormal Talent Agency, but there are 12 independent books that are, are you know. Um, and so I have three that are the, the nonfiction, like you mentioned, that they're basically pop psychology, social commentary type things. Um, and definitely Special Snowflake Syndrome is by far my most popular of the nonfiction. Um, I sell that very regularly. Interestingly, I sell tons of copies in the UK, Well, share a little bit with us what the special snowflake syndrome is. I read a little bit about it, but just for those listening, uh, because it makes sense why why this book sells. Yeah, so it's so funny. So I published it in 2016 before the election, right? Um, Because by then, we I know that was a whole, and it it skyrocketed around that time because people were really looking for explanations of stuff, I think. And the book isn't political. And I'm really quick to make sure people understand that because sometimes I get, 
I actually had one woman yelling at me at a book signing one time because she felt like I was being derogatory and was attacking people of her political persuasion. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, I almost was like, you need the book. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not political. There are people across the political spectrum that absolutely act like special snowflakes. There is no... There's no category that owns it. I'll, I'll just say that. Because um, really what we're looking at is that subgroup of society that believes they are entitled to special consideration, believes that they're unique, and that rules don't apply to them. And so then they act out like children when they don't get their way. And, and so, yeah, so I wrote the book and I imagined it, it's serious, but also a little bit tongue-in-cheek where I imagine it as, um, you know, an un, undiagnosed personality disorder. So I'm looking at it as it's not just responding to an issue or two that are like your hot button issues, but where you sort of expect everybody to agree with you on everything. And when they don't, yeah, you throw temp, temper tantrums, you attack them if it's online. I mean, all that kind of stuff. And so I wrote it the first half of the book really establishes it as a personality disorder. I actually took the D, it's called the DSM. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, I believe is the official title. But in, in mental health, we know it's the DSM. So I took the DSM format for personality disorders and I fleshed out special snowflake syndrome as a personality disorder. I talked about what criteria you would need to meet, um, how it would need to manifest, what kind of distress it would cause. I talked about what could cause it, both genetics as well as parenting style, talked about helicopter parents and sort of the influence of all of that and laid all of that out in the first half. And then in the second half of the book, I talked about what we can do to combat it. What can we do to cure it? And so that way you can read it if you do think you have special snowflake syndrome, but really if you want to be able to communicate with someone you think does, it can be an excellent way to read it. So I actually went, I, my first book signing that I did after it came out in October of 2016, it was um, incredibly popular. I mean, I sold out of all the books that I had certainly that day, but it was really funny how many people self-identified as teachers and said, I need this to talk to the parents. <laughs> and I was like, wow. But you kind of see that still. And a lot of I mean, you, you read these stories of parents who are like, I want to go with my, my, you know, adult child on their interview to make sure that they interview well and, and just this coddling of a lot of people. Um, anyway, so that's, that's, so it was, it, it has proven to be very, very popular with teachers um, and a couple of um, schools, I'm assuming are using it in their classes because at the start of semesters, I usually see like this bump in sales. You know, it could also apply, I got out of it, um, people who rely so much on social media and likes and content, and that can be so toxic. Um, I think especially younger people who maybe feel pressured into, they have to have such a following. Yes. And I think uh, social media can lend itself to promoting special snowflakes and that it can be a monster to the ego and self-worth and a bunch of other things that I have no business judging. But man, it is a good opportunity to have a healthy relationship with and without social media. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> uh, your books are available on Amazon. 
just search Heather Silvio. So as I mentioned earlier, you and I met at the theater. I was performing a solo show about a 1930s swing band leader named Ina Ray Hutton, and you were interested in developing your own solo show, also in the world of jazz music around that same time period. Yes, although not as much anymore because of the asthma, but I did, I did record um, a CD. I was hoping to do a one-woman show telling the story of Marion Harris. And who is Marion Harris? I've never heard of her. So Marion Harris, um, she was the first white woman to become internationally successful singing jazz and blues. So you mentioned your asthma prevents you from really singing the way that you would want to for the show. Are you doing anything else with Marion's story? I actually am working on a book that features her instead. I have a whole series I've outlined. (laughs) Um, I actually have like four different series outlined that I need to start writing, which I will be doing in 2021. Um, And one of them is Strong Women of History. And I'm focusing on mostly on women that certainly the general population has never heard of. Well, you could have multiple volumes of that book as well. There are so many women in history that need to step into the spotlight. And because your plate isn't full enough already, you also auditioned for and got cast in. So I auditioned for um, what everyone knows as the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but it's actually called the Rocky Horror Show. So I'm the narrator, which is traditionally a male role. Well, it's about time we broke that tradition, right? (laughs) Um, I like to ask all my lady vets, uh, if a young woman were to come up to you today and say that she's thinking about joining the military, what would you say to her? You know, I struggled with that question for a while. Um, Certainly when I first got out, because I had a lot of mixed emotions. I don't regret going in, but, you know, certain things happen that shouldn't have happened. And, you know, you don't wish that on anybody. But having said that, that doesn't have to be the experience, right? And so I I would say do your due diligence and look at the pros and cons of what it would mean because when you put on the uniform, you are the uniform for that length of time. Um, And so I would say, I I, I don't, so I I guess, yeah, I can't really give like a yes or a no. I, I would say that. I would say, do your research, find out what it is, that you want out of it and why you want to go in and make sure that that fits. I think where people sometimes struggle with it is if they're going in only because they want the education benefits or only because they want a guaranteed income. I think then it becomes harder to give up a lot of the control over your life that you do once you put on a uniform. But if you really are doing it because I tried to stick it out. Like I really, I was looking at maybe going to Aviano um, right up until about the six month mark, six months before my, my uh, tour of duty ended. I was still debating. I, I was like, well, maybe it'll be different. You know, I'll go to another one. And because in the end, it was set, it was handled mostly appropriately. But I, but I think, I honestly, at that point, I was like, I just don't think I can risk being in a situation where you can't just leave. I needed it to be a, a situation where I could just leave. Um, but I have tons of, of female friends that I met during that time who are still in, who love it, and they are making the change from within, you know, and helping it to go that direction. And so I would probably say if you go in, you know, make sure you you 
make those friends and have some female mentors like we were talking about and make sure you have that connection. Because I honestly think, although it was a female doctor who told me maybe I shouldn't be in the service, but my chain, the, the people who told me to suck it up, they were men. And I think that they just didn't get it. <laughs> um, the way a woman, the way a woman is more likely to, I think. And I know that's stereotypical, but certainly in my experience that that's been how it's, how it's gone, you know? Yeah. Agreed. Uh, I agree with you. And I've said it on other podcasts that I went in at a very different time. I went in in 95. Um, and now there's resources where you can research. You can go, the internet didn't exist when I went in. And so you just got like a pamphlet and kind of heard from a few people and pretty much believed everything the recruiter told you. I came from a military family, so I knew a little bit more of what the culture was. And I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I got out. And I hope it's, a di- I know it is a different military now, which is another reason why it's great to connect with women and talk about their experiences, just to see like, what has the shift been and what is your experience? Right. So that's why I try to always say, this was my experience. I can't speak to anything else, but I do know it was interesting when I first came forward and I never told everything, but what, what I did come forward with and the actual complaint, how many women came up to me and said, you know, I can't believe you're doing this. Um, I would never have, I would never, I would never risk my career for it. And they, and how many said, this is what happened to me across other, all branches. This is as you know, certainly not an Air Force specific issue. Um, how many said that? You know, they're like, I had, I had similar things happen and I would never say anything because I was told I would lose my career and I didn't want to lose my career. And, and, and I think today is very different than 10, 12 years ago. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I think there's still work to be done, but I think it's getting better. And I think the more women who do stay and, and, serve as role models and mentors for the younger women coming in will help make that more and more of a reality. It's such a catch 22, right? You need more women to make it like that, but those first women really have to take a lot and, or can, I should say have to, can. Well, Heather, thank you for being a voice for other women and standing up and speaking your truth. And thank you for sharing that here today. It was so nice to connect with you again. And thank you for spending time with me on the podcast. Thank you for allowing me to come on and talk. It was fun. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Heather Silvio, visit specialsnowflakesyndrome.com or heathersilvio.com. If you are a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year.